tonight, we're taking kind of a detour to talk about a little passage in a book called 1 John written by the apostle named John. Now, the apostle John, just so you know, was one of the last living disciples. He probably died around 90 years old, and he was exiled to this island called Patmos, and he wrote Revelation, the book of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and obviously the gospel according to John. Now, this is not John the Baptist. We're talking about John the Apostle. And John, in his letter, or in his gospel, he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that funny? Like, that's a funny thing to say, right? Like, I'm the one that God loves. And if any of you, any of you said that about, like, like your family, like, I'm the one that my dad loves out of all my siblings. It's kind of like seems stuck up, right? But when John says it, what he means is, I'm the one who truly got to experience Jesus' love. He's not saying at the cost of the other disciples, but he had the ability to actually see it up close in person. And so that's all he would do is just talk about God's love. Actually, according to Jerome, who's a church, um, early church father, he actually said that John, when he got so old, he would go to congregations to preach and people would carry him like into the pulpit and he would only say one thing. He would go, little children love one another and they carry him off stage and that was it. And people were like, whoa, that was crazy. Like that, that's all he would do. And then like eventually people in the church got tired of him. Like why don't, like you never change your message. It's only one thing, Right. It's always the same thing. Why, why is it that you keep on saying the same thing over and over and over? And that's because there's so much power in just knowing God's love and he was able to experience it and he wanted to share with others. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight is this guy named John the Apostle is writing this letter and he's writing this letter so that we would be able to get a glimpse into God's love. So let's read together. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother, brother also. Whoever, whoever believes that Jesus is the, is the Christ is born of God and who, everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in this passage, right, there's a lot of repetition. It can be kind of hard to follow what he's saying. So we're going to go slowly break down each sentence so we're able to really grasp the power that's in this passage as the Word of God. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us direction as though you yourself were here with us. Lord, it's so hard to preach to the heart. And we don't want to just fill our heads with more information, but we want our hearts to be transformed tonight. Lord, we don't want to remain the same people as we leave. That's why we've gathered here tonight. 
because we know that you're a real God that wants to speak to your people. And I, I pray tonight, Lord, that if there's anything that we walk away with tonight, it's your love. And we would love you and love others. We recognize how good you are. So fill us with the Holy Spirit, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the end of the semester. And as we approach the end of school, half of you are probably thinking about, about summer. And probably the other half of you is just like, the end of the school year means finals. Right? So finals just stress people out. Anyone stressed out because of finals? Everybody, right? Now, what's so stressful about finals and the SATs, right? I hated the SATs. Uh, does anybody love the SATs? Like, even smart people don't like the SATs. Okay, one person. But that proves the point, right? Most people do not like, most people do not like taking a test on the one day a week. Come on, the one day a week, you actually get a, as a free day to go into your school and take a test for hours on end. It's madness. And then they have the PSAT, which is just like, makes no sense to me. So back in the day, what's the, what's the maximum score you can get on the SAT? 1,600? They changed it again? What was, what was the one that you just had? Thank God. Okay, so this is what happened. So 2,400, how many of you took the SAT with 2,400? Wow, only few. The heck? What's wrong with America? Okay, so I was the very, very first grade to take the new P PSAT, which the maximum score is 2,400. So when I got my score back as 1,500, I was pretty stoked because I was used to the maximum grade being 1,600. I was like, I got a 1,500. They're like, that's, that's not good at all, actually. <laughs> like, ah, oh, I probably did better than everybody else. So I had 732 people in my graduating class. I was about 330 in my class. That's how I graduated. I was just like, so I beat the majority. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> as long as, what's bad about being average? Like a C marks an average person, right? So why are we so disappointed when we get a C? Like parents are disappointed as teachers, you, you can do better than that. No, I can't, because statistically, if everyone was above average, that would be average, right? If we just raise the standard, then like, what are we gonna do? Like everyone, if everyone got straight A's, then that would be a C. So we need some people to not do well, and I'd be glad to be one of those people. It's like, I'm not gonna try that hard. I'll just be like in between in the middle, you know? Either way, no matter where you are on the scholastic spectrum, I think all of us get nervous when it comes to our grades. Because you're thinking, am I going to be grounded for the entire summer because I got a D, because I got an F, whatever. And what's interesting about this in the grading system is sometimes you feel as if the grade says something about you, right? Like when you get a bad SAT score, I felt like I must be dumb because I got a bad score. And everybody else feels the same way. Even if it's just strictly about like textbook smarts or whatever, people evaluate you based on your grade, right? Like even people that go to Ivy League schools evaluate each other based on how you place and what classes you're taking, what professors, what papers you're writing, your academic score. And everyone's judging each other all the time. And that's why we have this fear approaching our grades because we don't know what's going to be said about us when we receive that grade. Now, many of us feel the same way 
when it comes to our relationship with God because we constantly feel in fear of judgment day. We, kind of, we always ask ourselves how we're going to be evaluated by God and we're constantly thinking about our relationship with him and being like, does God love me any, any less because I've sinned more today? Maybe God doesn't like me today, but maybe God loves me because he has to, but he doesn't like me, you know? So you look at your relationship with God and you see the sin in your heart. And so you ask yourself, is it true that God still loves me? But here's what the Bible says in the very first verse that we read. Verse 17 says, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, if you knew for sure that you killed the SAT, you killed it, like you're, you're like confident, you know all the answers, or even just any test. Have you ever had a test that you're just like, for whatever reason, the stars have aligned and you know all the answers, they're just like, yes, and you just answer them all? You have confidence. Just imagine if you haven't been there yet. You have confidence that the day that your paper will be graded, the day that your test will be graded, that you're gonna get an A. But what if it's said of you that despite your performance, you're already gonna get an A because someone else taking the test for you? And not in a cheating way, but this is what Jesus does for us. It almost seems like it would be cheating, right? Like we don't deserve to get to heaven, but we earn God's grade by just putting our, our faith in Jesus. We don't earn our grade of ourselves. We just say like, I'm gonna believe this guy, that he can do it. It's almost like the group project where the one person does all the work and everybody else just kind of like chills out and just, you know, sits back. And Jesus is that guy who does all of the work and then turns in the paper. And you're like, yes, I got an A, not based on my own work, but because of that guy being really smart. And so when you know that, you can go about your daily life in two ways. Still second guessing, well, am I really gonna get an A? Am I really going to do well? Or you can just relax and be like, Psh, I know he's got it. He's going to take care of it all of himself. And this is how Christians live two very different realities in life. There's one type of Christian that's always constantly in fear that God is not going to love them, abandon them, or just completely just not answer their prayers. You know, sometimes, if we're honest, the reason why we don't pray is because we feel like we can't pray. We feel like God won't hear our prayers until you stop doing what it is that you're doing. Give up that addiction or break up with that person. Or, and sometimes because of that fear, we actually stop coming to church. And we stop listening to people that are godly because we're afraid that somebody's going to point out sin in our life. And so because of that, we're always shutting away from the light because of fear. So when we actually have the second reality... Know that despite your sin, that Jesus loves you and he died for you. That's how we can have, instead of fear on judgment day, boldness on judgment day. Boldness, being able to walk in and be like, I know what God thinks about me because he loved me so much that he died on the cross for all my sins. When I, a number of years ago, won a quick check competition for the best sub or make your own sub or whatever, they gave me $1,500 in quick check gift cards. It took me a little over a year of like having friends go to Quick Check and just like buying everything. It took a little over a year to spend all $1,500. It was like madness. It was like a terrible idea to give me all that money for Quick Check. But I did. And you better believe that when I went, walked into 
quick, uh, quick check and my face was like on all the machines. I had boldness on the day that I was going to buy stuff. You know, I walked in with my friends. I was like, I'll take everything in the store because I can, you know? And the fact of the matter is you've been given your salvation. It's a free gift of God, not of works. You can't boast about it, but you can still walk in it and you can say, I'm going to live not in fear, but in boldness. Now, this word boldness here is this Greek word that means freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech, or just being open or frank about your speech. You're not holding anything back. And this is what our Christian life should be, is that we don't need to hide and we don't need to hold anything back from God and from other people. Why are we so ashamed of confessing sin with our, our brothers and sisters? The Bible says, confess your sins that you may be healed. But so many of us are afraid if we confess our sin, like maybe they won't trust me anymore. Maybe they're going to think I'm a terrible person. But Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as Jesus is, so we are in this world. Our life is synonymous with his life. Like he has given us that life. And then when the father looks upon us, he sees his son Jesus and his blood that was shed for us on that cross. Now, if it's possible that we can have boldness and walk away, like not afraid of people seeing our sin, the fact that we're messed up, like when we come to church, we should be able to be open and honest and like, hey, I still struggle with things. I don't, you know, I don't read my Bible as often as I should. I still look at things I shouldn't look at and I still lust and whatever. You, you say things like that, right? But you only say that when you're alone and between you and God sometimes. Why is it that we don't feel comfortable bringing those things to our brothers and sisters? I think many of you would say for this reason. You would say the reason why we don't have boldness is because we keep on sinning, right? And so you're, imagined um, solution to the problem is to stop sinning or at least clean up your life a little bit so that you can confess not the huge sins that you've done in the past but it'll feel so distant that you can start confessing like yeah the other day I forgot to pray for five hours so you can pray for me that I start to pray for at least four and a half you know I did three yesterday but I know that I'm in sin you know like like you want to be able to confess lower sins. And when you have times of prayer with your friends or whatever, if you do that, you're like, how can I pray for you, brother? And like, yeah, you can just pray for school. Pray for, you know, just life, health, family members. And we're not honest. And we think, most of us think, the only solution is to stop sinning. Or at least fix up your life so that it's not as bad. So the sin that you confess isn't really the bad sin. But that, of course, is never going to be the solution. And why is that? Because you and I will continue to sin. Sorry to break it to you, but till the day that you die, you will still be a sinner. That doesn't mean that you'll do less and less sin. Doesn't mean you're not going to progress. But you will continue to sin. You're going to do stupid things over and over and over. Because we still live in a sinful world where people hurt us and we do bad things. So the Bible is teaching us not that the solution is to stop sinning, but it says the reason why we don't experience boldness and confidence is because we don't really know God's love. 
That's why. That's why you wake up feeling guilty every morning. That's why you don't want to share your sins with other people. Because you don't know God's love. You say you do. You've grown up in church your whole life, but you don't know what it means to be loved by God. Because if you knew God's love, you would know that he chose you, not while you were seeking him, but when you were at your worst. The Bible says while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. There are sins that you and I have committed that we don't even know that we've committed, and Jesus died for those sins too. Jesus did not die on the cross once for all the sins up until the time that you come to know Jesus, and then after that, you're going to have to keep on confessing and atoning because, you know, you keep on doing bad things and God needs to forgive all those sins again. He has, he has died once for all humanity. Otherwise, Jesus would have to die over and over and over and over for each and every one of your sins. Instead, he is the perfect sacrifice. And to say that we still have sins that are not forgiven, that God can't forgive these sins, is to actually minimize the fact that Jesus died on the cross. It's to minimize his love. It's to say something about God, isn't it? Because what you're basically saying about God is this. You only love me when I'm doing good. I think that's insulting. What's insulting to me, to be honest, is when people, like, don't want to, like, and this happens to all kinds of youth leaders. And I get it, you know? Like, when people sin, they're ashamed. And they're like, oh, I don't want to confess this to my youth pastor, my youth leader. Just, I don't want to talk about it, right? But listen, to run away into the way of the world because you're ashamed of sin is, like, exactly what the enemy wants. He wants you to be so ashamed that you need to hide it and then fix up your life and then you'll come back to church when you're ready. It's a lie from the enemy. Instead, what you need to do is confess it because then what you'll see is this. There's nothing, hear me on this. There's nothing that you can confess that Jesus can't forgive. And to know that, my friends, is one of the most joyous things you'll experience in this life. To know that there's nothing in my life that Jesus does not know, that he has not already forgiven your confession is not so that Jesus can die on the cross again so that you can really be forgiven now. It's just so that you can recognize this is another sin that I need to repent of. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to hurt the Lord. I love him. And because I love him, I want to walk in ways that please him. But to know that when you confess, you're like, oh, I'm going to tell my youth pastor. I'm going to tell my youth leader. This is what I did last week. And they're like, okay. Like, you're not going to freak out. Like, nope. Like, that's amazing. You walk away from that conversation, like, I feel great, you know? But even in, even in the cases that your friends or maybe parents don't react well to your sin, don't believe for a second that means that Jesus isn't willing to forgive you. Because people are still sinful, right? They don't always react in the best ways. And unfortunately, that reflects upon the Lord. But that is where we have to bring ourselves to the scripture and not people and ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? The Bible says this is how we can have boldness on the day of judgment. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his sacrifice and knowing his love is what expels that fear. So if you're constantly afraid of how God sees you, this is where we have to go to verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. 
You can't have an intimate relationship with someone that you are terrified of. If you have a boss, if you have somebody that you're like, like maybe your boss is like the scariest person alive on the face of the earth to you. Maybe it's a teacher, a principal. Getting called in the principal's office would be the most terrifying thing, right? Why? Like the principal, let's, let's just imagine for a second. Your principal says, all right, I want so-and-so in my office right now. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be expelled. And you don't even know what you did, but you're just going to the principal's office, obviously because I'm in trouble. And that's because you don't have a relationship with the principal. But let's say that you're actually the principal's kid. You're the son. Now it could just be like, hey, you forgot your lunch, right? You don't always think that you're in trouble because you have a loving relationship with them. When you have a good relationship with someone, you're not afraid of them in this terrified way because the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. So if you're afraid, it's because you don't really know God's love. So, just as if you are terrified of your boss, you're never going to ask him out to lunch, right? If you're, every time your boss walks around, like, Ugh! you're like, always making sure, like, you're not sitting on the job and doing stuff. If that's how you view your boss, you'll never ask him out for a cup of coffee. Say, hey, do you want to just hang out? You never do that. Because you don't have an intimate relationship with him because it's fear-based. And it's the same way with God. If you are terrified that every time you do something wrong that God will hate you, then it can't be said that you really have a loving relationship with God. But that's exactly the relationship he wants you to have. He wants you to love him, to know that any time that he would even punish us is not because he doesn't like us. It's so that we, as his children, are not going to do things that are dangerous for us. So, perfect love casts out all fear. Here's our first point for this evening. Fearing God's judgment is ignoring the cross. Fearing God's judgment is ignoring the cross. Verse 19 says this, we love him because he first loved us. And here's the thing about that. The reason why this verse is so hard to understand is because we don't have any relationship like this. We don't know what it's like to just be loved despite who we are. Now, I mean, like, hopefully in the church we'd have relationships like that. But Jesus loved us, not because we were good people, but like we heard the Tim Keller quote, not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. And many of us, what we need to look at is the fact that Jesus died on the cross even before I was born. And he did that for me. So if you're always terrified about like, will God judge me on the day of judgment? Like, you forgot that the judgment day already happened for you and it was on the cross. And instead of judging you, he judged his son. He took your place. So instead of walking in fear, our solution is to just walk in love, even if you don't feel like it. And just say, despite how I feel, I just, I'm going to believe by faith that Jesus loves me. And I'm going to confess by faith, even though, I'm terrified of what's going to happen. Terrified, like, what people think about me. I'm going to tell somebody because I don't want to walk in fear the rest of my life. Instead, you want to know his love. Secondly, we look at verse 20. Second section. It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, 
that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So that sentence is so straight up, right? If you say, everyone look up here. If you say, I love God and you hate your Christian brother or sister, the Bible says you are a liar. So what do we do with that? This is what we do. Well, I don't really hate them. I just don't really like them. Why do we do that? Right? We, we look at the Bible. It's so plain and simple. Like, I was talking about this with uh, Brian Higgins the other day. The forgiveness passage, Matthew 18, is like the most clear passage in the entire Bible. There's no skipping around it. You have to forgive people. And what do we do? Like, like, do we really have to forgive this person? They might hurt me again. That's what Peter said, right? How many times do I have to really forgive them? Seven, seven, uh, seven times? And according to Jewish law, like three times is like generous. That's, that's all you had to do. So like seven is like, that's a lot. And Jesus like 70 times seven, Peter. It's like, oh, that's a lot of times. But this is what we do. We're like, what do I really have to do? Like, okay, I'll forgive them because I'm a Christian. And that's what we'll do. We'll say that to people. We'll actually tell them like, well, as a Christian, I'll forgive you because I'm supposed to. Like, whoosh. What kind of forgiveness is that? Like that does nothing. You really think the other person when you say that is gonna be like, oh, I feel great now, thank you. Whew, I feel forgiven, set free. So what we do is we look at the word hate and say, well, I don't really hate them. I just really don't like them at all. I'll never talk to them. I despise them. I don't hate them. Ladies and gentlemen, if it's not hate, what in the world is it? Do you really think that one day we're going to get to heaven and God's going to look at us and be like, oh, thank God you didn't hate anybody. You only despise people. If you went to the next level, we would have a problem here. We really have a problem. God is telling us that if you hate somebody tonight, you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to hate somebody? Is it the fact that you completely cut them out of your life because they did something to you? And you're like, well, the reason why I haven't forgiven them is because they haven't like repented. They haven't said that they're sorry. Forgiveness is not conditional on someone else's repentance, on our end at least. And here's why. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at it. Even though it's a very popular passage, might as well look at it tonight. Matthew chapter 18. I'll show you why. Look at verse 21, and we'll just go to verse 35. We'll read them all out. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And then he tells them a story, okay? Illustration. Love Jesus. I love the fact that he can bring it into plain English and also illustrate it. He says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. 
But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down on his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay that debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Did you catch that there? Jesus, Jesus is saying, if you are not willing to forgive your brother, I'm not willing to forgive you. Why? Here's why. In this illustration, they use money, you know, obviously in those times that was different than the money that we have, but scholars estimate that the, the debt that the servant owed the king was a, anywhere between $12 million and $1 billion. Now, here's the thing about debt of a billion dollars when you're a servant. There's a huge problem here. If you owe $10,000, let's say that you go into college debt, you owe like $50,000. That's a lot of money, right? But here's the thing. Eventually, over a number of years, decades perhaps, you can pay off $50,000. If you were told you owe $1 billion, here's the problem. You will not live long enough. There comes a point where you look at your, your paycheck and like, hold on a second. In the amount of my life, I will probably only make about $500,000, period. So $1 billion and I only make $500 in my life. There's a problem here. I will never be able to pay it back. It's the same thing when you hear people that are convicted of murders, they're, they're terrible, and they're like, you have not only life in prison, but you have like 300 years in prison or something. You're like, you don't live that long. So when the servant says, just give me time and I'll pay you back what I owe, it's like laughable. It's like, ha you can't. I know you can. It's like, that's cute, but you can't do that. <laughs> so then the problem becomes when he sees somebody else who owes him, and it was, it was considerable, about 100 days worth of working. Okay, so like whatever an average person makes, they work for 100 days in a year, and this person owed them whatever that amount was. I don't know if like you make $50,000. I can't do math, but you get it. Like half of the year, I don't know, $15,000. Let's just say that. $15,000, not, not like a crazy amount, but like that's a significant amount of money. That person feels justified in saying like, hey, you owe me $15,000. But the reason why he was wrong, you're requiring it of somebody else is because he had just been forgiven a billion dollars. This is what Jesus is saying. When you can't forgive, it's because you have completely forgotten that God has forgiven you of a crazy amount of money. A debt that you can never repay. Even if he wanted you to, he's like, yep, I want you to pay it up. He would never be able to in this lifetime. This is why hell is eternal, ladies and gentlemen, because apart from Jesus Christ atoning for your sin, there's no amount of effort, no amount of atonement or work that you can do to atone for your sins. And yet we still look at our brothers and sisters, Christians, right? We look at them and we say like, I don't know if I can forgive that person. I actually don't like that person. I hate that person. How can we do that? Especially considering, like, this is not talking about serial murderers that don't know Jesus. 
This is talking about people that have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Listen, if you have a Christian, brother or sister, that you have not forgiven, this is what you need to know. That Jesus says, if you don't forgive them, I won't forgive you. Those are heavy words, and we have to consider it because of this. There is no issue in the body of Christ that, sh that is not reconcilable. There should be absolutely no issue that divides us because Satan is the one who divides us. Jesus is the one who unites us. He says, I pray that the church be one as you and I are one. He prayed that in John chapter 17. So if there's something dividing us, it's not God. What could be the issue? What could be the problem? Because no matter what the person owes us, and it could be significant, it cannot compare to the amount that, of, of debt that we owe God. And if we still feel justified in our harboring our bitterness, harboring our unforgiveness, it's because we really fail to recognize the debt that we owe to the Lord. Um, David Guzik, who's a pastor in Calvary Chapel in uh, Santa Barbara, he has a great comment on this passage. He says, this parable shows us why it's incorrect for us to think God doesn't forgive me without my repentance. Therefore, I must withhold forgiveness from others who sin against me until they properly repent. That thinking is wrong because I don't stand at the same place as God in the equation and I never can. God stands at, as one who has never been forgiven and never needed forgiveness. I stand as one who has been forgiven and needs continual forgiveness. So sometimes you're like, well, I need that person to like make it right and then I'll forgive them. The reason why we can't do that is because we too need forgiveness. God doesn't need forgiveness, so he doesn't need to wait until people repent. Instead, he died for us in our sins and he still chose to forgive us. The Bible is so clear on this that it even says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He says, you come to worship at the temple and if you still have something against somebody, leave your gift where it is and go reconcile yourself to your brother. And then you can come back to the altar and worship. He says, before you enter the place of worship to give worship, first bring reconciliation with the people around you. But what we do instead is, I'll go to a different service or I'll go to a different church. And that way I never really have to forgive. And that's dangerous. I may have said this before, but it's worth repeating again. If John the Apostle could just have a one-liner and say a billion times, I think I can say this again. Here's what I believe is the most dangerous thing about bitterness. The reason why the Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, because it gives a foothold for the devil, why does it say that? This is what I believe. I believe the reason why bitterness is so dangerous, because when you are bitter, suddenly any sin you commit is justified. Because you think, well, no matter what I do, it'll never compare to what somebody has done to me. This is why people sometimes are guilty of the same sins that people have done to them. Because they feel justified in taking that same harm against somebody else. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is, I just boggle my mind why when people are caught in the midst of sin, adultery or all kinds of different things, sometimes they blame everybody else. And like, well, this person did that, this person did this. And that, I never understood that. Because if that ever happened to me, God forbid, like I did something super shady, I went and slept around or whatever, and like I got caught, 
Like, I just always envisioned myself, because I thought about it before, like, what would happen? Like, goodness gracious, my life would be over. Like, all the people, all you guys would be disappointed. Like, I'd make all of you cry. Like, I would cry. It just would be terrible. Like, everybody would just cry. If I just failed in sin, right? Like, I would, that'd be terrible, right? I don't get the same liberty as some of you guys. Like, I have to put myself to a higher standard, you know? I don't want to give myself a chance for some of those sins to even be in my life. So I think about, like, if I was ever caught, like, I would just be devastated, right? How in the world could somebody say, like, this person, you should have held me accountable, and I can't believe, like, why would they point the finger when they're calling them it's a sin? And then it occurred to me, when you harbor bitterness, suddenly any sin that you commit is justified. In years and years and years of holding that bitterness, now you feel like now it's okay for me to take it on somebody else. It's dangerous. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do. If he can't keep you from being used by the Lord, he will make anything that is used by the Lord useless because it's done with selfish motives and it's done in sin. So that's why we have to, and maybe at the end of tonight as we pray, like that could be your time of confession. Say like, Lord, I have to be reconciled to my Christian brothers and sisters. So Bible's clear here that if we say that we love God, we don't really love God if we can't reconcile with others. Here's our second point. Hating our brothers and sisters is ignoring God's grace to us. Hating our brothers and sisters is ignoring God's grace to us. So the problem is not what they did to you. The problem is that you haven't really remembered what God has already done for you. In the news the other day, um, the headline was something like, there was a former racist who donated $2,000 to a black church in South Carolina. And it was an anonymous letter, but the letter said this. I am white and used to be a terrible racist, but due to Christ's teachings, I am appalled at my former thoughts and words. I send this donation as a heartfelt apology to the African-American community as a sign of God's love for you and as a sign of my love for you as well. It's a great story. And this is what the power of Jesus does in a person's life. A person, like you look on the news, and this is why uh, a lot of people hate Christians. They think all Christians are all about hate. Like why, why do we have that moniker? We should be the monikers of lovers, right? We're the type of people that are so radically transformed that like people that are racist actually donate $2,000 anonymously to a black church. That's what happens when Christ's love penetrates you because suddenly you recognize like, I'm a wretch and God forgave me. Of course I'm gonna love other people. And then you can never love people to the degree that God loved you. And so that's why we, we go all out with other people. That's why we're gonna write a card to a person who lives in Arizona because like, why not? If we can show the love of Christ to somebody else, we're gonna do it. But when we're bitter, we can't. We're always prevented from showing that love because we feel like people need to love us first. Isn't it true? Like we feel like we have no love to give because we're not loved by the people that haven't, we haven't forgiven. And that's because we're looking for the, the wrong love from the wrong person. Okay, here's a, your last portion and we'll be done for this evening. Continues on and it says in verse two of chapter five, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So 
Some of you look in there, you kind of chuckle, right? It's like, well, I, I feel terrible right now. I don't feel very good. Because you know there's all these types of things that you have to do. And sometimes following the Lord might feel like that. Like you feel so burdened and weary. Like all the things that you're like trying to keep track. Like I'm supposed to read my Bible, go to church. I have to pray. I have to evangelize. I have to, you have to do all these things. And that's because we missed the point. If his commandments are burdensome, there's a problem here. It's because we've actually forgotten God's love. The, way, the reason why we serve the Lord is not to be liked, not to be loved. He already loves us, right? But instead we do that because we love him. That's why the commandments are not burdensome. Imagine how many of you are puppy people? Puppy people, come on. Don't be ashamed. If someone gave you a puppy, just like today, like, just going to give you a puppy? Here you go. Like, for me, it'd be a husky puppy. You just give me a husky. Like Pochi, like my little pocket pal. Someone just gives me a husky, right? Now, if someone gave you a free puppy, it's like, all right, you're going to have to feed them every day. You're like, okay. Like, and when you feed them, you also have to take them for a walk. Like, okay. Like, you're going to have to wash him. Like, okay. Like, I get it. Like, will it feel like a burden when you're feeding your puppy? You're like, you cute little puppy. When it gets older, it's a problem. But when it's a cute little puppy, like, it's not a burden to watch a puppy. Like, that's why people dog sit, right? Bring, give me your puppy. I'll take care of your puppy. And yes, some things that puppies do are annoying and they pee on your carpet or whatever. But realize, anytime God asks you to do something, it's for your good and his glory. There is no pee on the carpet in his commands. There's not like, oh, well, because you love God, but really it's not going to be very good for you. Sorry. Like nothing he asks you to do is going to be a bore. It's going to be exciting. It's going to help you become a little bit more of who you're supposed to be. But everyone's like, yeah, I don't drink because like, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. Like that's how we talk about it. We go to like parties with our friends, like they hand us a beer or whatever. And you're just like, well, I, the reason why I, I'm, I can't, like, not only because I'm, like, not 21, but, like, my parents would kill me. Like, that's the reason why we say it. Like, that's so lame. Because what you're effectively saying is, I'm a, like, I am a robot, and I obey whatever my parents tell me to do. And you don't have any, like, thought-out reasons of, like, well, I love my parents. I, I like, I would never want to disappoint my parents by bringing, like, having them smell alcohol in my breath. I just wouldn't want to do that to my parents. And I know it would, like, just crush them. And that's why you don't do it. Not because, like, you're like, I'm not supposed to. I was told. I don't know why. God always has a reason. And we have to trust him by faith that he knows what he's doing. And so your third and last point is this. Weariness in serving God is ignoring his love. Ignoring his love. He loves you. Do you know that? He loves you. If he tells you to do something, it's not because he hates you. He died on the cross for you. So if he asks you to do something in his word, it will only help you to be a little bit more of who you are and glorify him and further your calling and further his kingdom. It's going to be exciting. I've never looked back at my life and be like, man, why in the world didn't I party in college? I never thought that. I've never had, honestly, I've never had a moment like, why didn't I go sleep around in college? Never thought that. Like maybe when I was, when I was like less sanctified, I watched what all the people in the world were doing and there's a part of you like watches the movies like, oh, maybe it'd be nice to have that because of the lust in your heart. 
But as you become more sanctified and you draw closer to Jesus, that stuff kind of gets rooted out of your heart. You're like, no, I would never want to do that. It's so depressing. And you see, as you get older, like you guys know I'm 28 now, you see all the friends that went that way and now they're suffering the ramifications of it. Like back in the day, it was like cool to hang out with guys who are like approaching 30 and you're like a teenager and like they're like smoking weed. Like that was the cool thing. Like, it's already kind of weird that I'm, like, 28 years old and hanging out with teenagers all the time. But, like, if you're not a Christian, then, like, why would you even do it, right? So, like, guys are, like, maybe 27 and smoking weed with, like, teenagers. Cool. And then, like, you get older, like, wow, they don't have a job. And he still smokes weed. And, like, nobody likes this guy. And I thought he was really cool just because he was older. But he's really not. Like, he's, he's actually very weird, Right? <laughs> So as you get older, you have this perspective of just like, this is not the life I want. I don't want this aimless kind of life. I want to live a life that glorifies the Lord. It's going to be exciting. So his commandments are not burdensome. If you're burdened, it's because you've ignored his love. And just reading the last two verses, it says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay. In conclusion, this evening. If you look at all the things that we talked about tonight, it kind of wraps up where he says, this is what overcomes the world. It's our faith. We can overcome the world by our faith. Now, why does it say that? Here's what I think. The world system is all about making you focus on what you can see now right? The reason why you wake up and you feel guilty and condemned is because you're looking on what you can see now. Like, I'm a terrible person. I still sin. I still mess up. The reason why that we hate people is because we're seeing people in this imperfected state and we can't see as God sees. We can't see their soul. We can't see the Holy Spirit inside. We're focusing on what we can see now. They haven't really repented. They haven't really, you know, they haven't really shown that they're sorry for what they've done. And the reason why commandments are burdensome is because we don't know the why. We don't know what God has planned in the future. We don't know that just saying yes to one door that God opens could unlock a future of possibilities. And so the world says, well, that guy really, he's not really sorry. The world says, oh, you're still reading your Bible. Man, like, is this really going to benefit anything? Is this really going to, like, make you, like, wiser? Is this going to do anything for you? The world says, like, really, like, you're a sinner. Like, yeah, you're a bad person. So why don't you just admit it and just hang with us? But seeing with faith, faith is believing without seeing, right? To see with eyes of faith is to overcome the world. This is how you do it. You put your faith in Jesus. Yes, I am a sinner, but who I am now is not who I will be on the day of judgment when I am glorified along with Jesus. When Christ, who is our life, is risen with glory, displayed in glory, I'm going to be there too okay, yeah, that person is annoying. They've done bad things, terrible things to me. But you know what? They have the Holy Spirit inside of them. They are my brother, my sister, and the Lord. And I, I love them because Christ loves them. Yeah, I know, like, maybe it doesn't seem like going to church every Friday or end Sunday, like, will, you know, really be beneficial. But I, by faith, believe that the word of God has the power to change my life. And as I just kind of, like, study it, it's going to do something. I believe that. I'm like stupid enough to believe that. And I've never regretted it. And I don't think you will either. So maybe tonight there is 
someone that you have to forgive. Maybe tonight you feel like you need to be forgiven. Maybe tonight you feel just tired. But the answer is always Jesus and his love. Let's pray.